We've been in a series called Recovering Redemption. This is week four. Over the last few weeks, we have walked through a couple different things. We've talked about the reality of this world, that it's broken. We've talked about um, the remedy to that reality, and we've talked about our response in repentance. And those are three awesome things that really could just stand by themselves, but we've got more for you. Today, we're going to walk through the benefits of faith, that when we are in a relationship with Jesus, there are benefits that come alongside that relationship. And we want to look through it through the same lens that we've been looking through everything else over this series, the lens of how does the gospel, how does the gospel of Christ When I put it in my life, how does it change everything about me? How does it change the way I live it? So when we look at the benefits of faith, they should stir up within us a deeper understanding of the gospel of Christ and would stir up within us a a deeper affection for the love of God. Because we all in some ways believe that Jesus loves us, right? I mean, it's Jesus loves me, this I know, right? You've heard that before, and I'm sure that you are wanting to hear me sing today. So I'm... I'm sure that I fulfilled some of your wish list today. Nine o'clock, love that. I'm just going to let you know. <laughs> Nine o'clock, really like that one. <laughs> but we understand that Jesus loves us, but we don't understand the width and the depth of that love. So that's where I'm going to take us today. We're going to talk about the benefits of faith, understanding his love, and we're going to do that by looking at three different passages. We'll be in the book of Galatians in chapter 2 and 4 and uh, the book of Colossians chapter 3. And I promise we're not going to go through all those chapters. I'm not going to keep you here that long, uh, but we have to do some work in those. So before we do that, I want to take some time to prepare our, our hearts. So over the next 20 seconds, I would love for you just by yourself, individually, quietly, just to pray for yourself that you would hear from God today, that he would stir up within you a deeper desire to follow him, that he would convict our hearts of some of those things that we need to remove or improve to have a deeper, more impactful walk with him. So you do that, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in our Jeeps and drive. Father, I just, uh, I'm just asking that you're present with us today. I know you're here. Um, that you would stir in our hearts the things that you want us to understand, the things that you want us to take away today. Um, just keep our hearts focused, keep our eyes focused, keep our minds focused on your word. Lord, use my words today to glorify your name. Um, and Spirit, we do just come invite you to be in this place with us today. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I just want to address an issue um, before we get into the meat of the message. I think if we understand this, it will bring a lot more out of what we're going to go through today. Uh, I am an observer of culture. I like to look in culture and see what's going on. And then I like to address that culture and maybe how it hinders us, how it prevents us from having a deeper, more impactful relationship with Jesus. Not just that how we know him, but how we live our lives because of him. So today, I just want to talk about this issue that I'm constantly kind of concerned about, and it's the draw of our culture towards busyness, towards pushing us to do things based upon the fear of getting behind or not having enough or whatever fear that might be in our lives that we feel like we need to schedule a lot of stuff. So what begins to happen is our calendars begin to look like a game of Sudoku, right? Trying to find all the blank spots for us to put things into it. So what happens is we put all this stuff into things and then Jesus just becomes something that we schedule. Something that we have to manage. He seems to fit well on Sunday mornings, 
unless, you know, something else might come up in front of it. When we begin to treat Jesus as something that we add on to our lives, as something that we manage, we've perverted it, right? We've made it into something that it was never intended to be. Our relationship with God has to be the source of all of our relationships, all that we do and all that we are. He is not something that we should manage. He is something by which we manage our lives entirely. And I hope that you get that at some point. I'm praying for my heart to get that. Because if we treat Jesus like an add-on, we put him in the same camp as guitar lessons and dates, right? And who's at the center of that? It's us. Our time, our schedule, our resources. So what happens is we end up making ourselves our own God and giving God the lip service. So it's important that we understand where our relationship with Christ should fit before we understand the benefits of faith, faith because we will never reap the kind of benefits of faith if he's not in the proper spots. We will never feel the results of a fully redeemed life if we see Jesus as something to be managed, not as the preeminent source of all that we are and all that we do. So today, to fully understand our relationship with God, we need to talk about a couple terms and a third one at the end to bring a greater understanding to our relationship. And I'm going to seem really smart to you guys today because I'm going to make big words come out of my mouth. But if you get to know me, these aren't words that I use often, okay? So the first of those terms is called justification. Now, the definition of justification is this. It's a fact, it's a circumstance, it's a reason or explanation that defends or justifies somebody. And we love this. We love to be justified. It's that kind of like that moment, if you can think at work, where maybe this has happened to you, where your boss comes up to you and accuses you of doing something that you know that you didn't do. And then all of a sudden, in that conversation, one of your coworkers comes in and says, hey, listen, it wasn't this guy. Your friend Billy down there is the one that's responsible for that. And you wish somebody was in the back going, oh, snap, because you love that moment, right? You feel good, like, wow, what are you going to say now, fool? Huh? You going to bring it on? That's a great moment, but I'm here to tell you the spiritual aspect of justification is far better than that moment could ever be. So to really understand the word justification, we need to look at it at Scripture, right? So let's go to Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16, and you guys can follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. It says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We are Gentile sinners. Yet we know that the per, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what this verse is saying, simply, is that we don't justify ourselves. When it says a person is not justified by the works of the law, we don't justify ourselves. In other words, it says this, being a good person does not justify you to the Father. When I first started my journey following Christ, I had a guy ask me this question. He said, Steve, if you came to heaven someday and, and Jesus asked you why he should let you in, why would he let you in? And I said, that's a good question. I said, well, because I'm a nice guy. You know, I don't use profanity and I let old ladies come in the door. I hold the door open for them. That's literally what I said, okay? That's what I said. And he explained to me that that wasn't the case, that being a good person does not justify you to the Father. It's not about that. Now, we love the thought that Jesus makes us right. We love the thought that he redeems us, 
And we sort of vaguely understand that we're hidden in him, that when, Jesus see, when God sees us, he sees a son. We like that for ourselves, but we don't like justification for people we don't like. And better yet so, we don't like it for people who have done really, really, really bad things. We want justice for them, right? And not justification. Now, many of you in this room would know this name, Jeffrey Dahmer. Many of you are familiar with that name. If you aren't, here's a little background. He killed 16 people from 1978 to 1991. In the ways that he did it, we're not gonna talk about on the stage. A vile, despicable man that deserved the kind of justice on earth that he got. But, and there is a but in this story. What do we do with this? A prison minister named Roy Ratcliffe drove and had weekly one-hour meetings with Dahmer. Ratcliffe chronicled these, this journey in a book, and in that book he claims that Jeffrey Dahmer made a legitimate decision to follow after Jesus Christ, that he was repentive and remorseful, and he claims that his decision was sincere. Now, I'm not going to sit here on stage and claim to know the salvation of somebody I don't know. So what I'm going to do. But what if it's true? What if it's true that Dahmer was sincere in his decision? Does that bother us? I think it bothers some of us. Maybe bothers me a little bit. But here's the question that we have to take out of this. Is God's love big enough to forgive Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah, right? Yes, it is. It's big enough to forgive him. And if it's big enough to forgive Jeffrey Dahmer, it's big enough to forgive anything that we could have ever done in our past. Listen to what it says here in John 1, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children. I just kind of like that. My little children. I am writing you these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, which just means settlement, appeasement, or restoration of our sins, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of what? The whole world. All sin. Not just some. Not just a few. But all sin. And it may not seem fair that a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer could be redeemed and in heaven someday but I caution us in wanting fairness. We don't want fairness. In the book of Romans, in the fifth chapter, it says that we were all enemies of God, that we have all chosen our own way, that we have all sinned, and that sin carries a punishment with it, and God would be just to let us perish in that sin, but he doesn't. Out of his goodness, he justifies us. Isn't that a great thing? So it is not by works that we are justified. It's by faith only. It's not about being, I'm better than that guy. It's not about being better than that guy. It's not about doing something. Faith in Christ justifies us. That the sovereign God of the universe has banged the gavel and declared you innocent. He has banged the gavel and justified you and declared you innocent. Fully knowing your mess, fully knowing your sin, justified you clean, and nothing you could do could ever earn that. God gave it to you through faith. And at that same moment that he justified you, he adopted you as sons and daughters. And that's our second term, adoption. And to understand adoption in a biblical mindset, 
Let's go to Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Christ. Isn't it amazing that God sends down his spirit that inside of us cries out, Father. That he has made us adopted into his family. So what we get from this is that God isn't only just a, a just judge like we talked about, but he's also a loving father. God isn't a, just a just judge, two just together, but also a loving father. So here's a little thing about adoption. I've not been through adoption processes. Maybe many of you have been through that. I'm sh there's a lot of complications that come with that, I know. Simply put, though, it is a decision to say yes to something. The person that is adopting someone or something is saying, yes, that I choose that person. It's a cognitive decision to say, I choose you, that I'm going to pour out my love, my time, my energy, my resources, my treasures into you. Adoption is not this unwilling appeasement. So when God says that he has given us spirits, a spirit of adoption, he is saying this, I choose you. I want you. This isn't recess, all right? We're not playing a game where we have to be the last one. Well, I guess no one's left but Jimmy. I'll just have to have him on my team. God's not doing that. He picked you. He wanted you just the way you are just the way that you are. And this is so hard for us to understand. It's so hard for me to grasp and comprehend this, that God delights in you just the way you are. That he delights in you just the way you are. Just the you that sits in this seat. The God of the universe delights in you. We struggle with that. But you tell me, you might say, well, you don't know that guy three rows over from me. He's got some junk in his life. But you tell me what good father loves their kid based upon some idea of what they may be. If you're like me, when you held that little thing, that little baby that for me is this little girl in your arms, you experienced this type of love that you never knew was possible. It was this kind of like, I am a complete mess, but I love this thing more than anything I've ever, I'm sobbing, there's mucus coming out of me, but I love this thing more than anything I could ever have experienced in my life. But what did that baby ever do for you, right? Caused my wife an ungodly amount of pain, right? Refused to sleep. Peed and pooped all the time, right? All sorts of inconveniences. That baby could do nothing by itself. Still can't. Well, just some, but we loved it, right? We loved it still. It didn't matter. We loved it. We loved her, not because of what she would do, we loved her innately because she just was. She just was. And it is so hard for us sometimes to understand that our Father in heaven loves you just that very same way. That he loves you that much. That he's adopted you. That he's caring for you. That he celebrates you. That he delights in you. That he's applauding your efforts. That you're taking two steps forward and you're taking one step back and falling down. But he's still applauding you, encouraging you to keep going. And I know that there are many of you in this room that may have never been able to understand the love of a good father on earth. But I want you to understand 
that God is the good father that your daddy should have been if sin hadn't messed this thing up. Do not equate the love of your broken father on this earth to the eternal love of our father in heaven. And listen, I am sorry that you had to go through that. But you have a good father in heaven that delights in you. That through faith, he loves you just the way you are. Adoption has nothing to do with ability, worthiness, stature, just faith. He said yes to you by faith. And when he said yes to you, he justified you pure and spotless, and he adopted you as sons and daughters. And what this means is that since I'm justified and adopted, that when God looks at me, he no longer sees me, but he sees me plain, spotless, blameless, in his sight. That's a positional holiness that I don't get at times, and it's only because of him. He sees me as spotless and pure through his son. But he isn't after this just positional holiness. He actually wants transformational holiness in our lives. He actually wants to transform our lives that we would get more and more like the way he designed things to work, that we would begin to look more and more like Jesus. Now, positional holiness is great, and I can't get my mind around it always, but God isn't just after positional holiness. He is in the business of transforming our lives. Now, when you were growing up, or maybe this has happened to you with kids, you've probably got comments in this realm, man, he looks just like his dad, you know? Thankfully, nobody's saying that about Camille. She looks a lot like her mother, and we're thankful. Thankful for that. Spinning image of the mother. What does spinning image mean anyways? I don't, I don't understand that. But here's the thing, when you're adopted, you don't have the genetics to look like your parents, right? You look a little different. But in the spiritual realm, when we follow Christ, when we are adopted into his family, listen, people should be able to tell at some point that you look like your new father. People should be able to tell at some point that there's some sort of family resemblance. People should be able to tell at some point there's some common traits within the family a love for one another, a contentment and peace in difficult times, honesty, generosity, the joy that comes with knowing Jesus. When they see us, they should be able to see a distorted, somewhat at times, picture reflection of Jesus, of God. They should be able to see Jesus in us, in our behaviors, in our actions, in the things that we say, in the things that we do. There should be some sort of family resemblance to that. But hear me, this is a process and that process is a big word, and it's called sanctification. And sanctification is not like justification and adoption. It doesn't happen in a moment, whereas sanctification happens from the moment of conversion all the way to heaven, that you and I are being transformed from one degree to the next by the Holy Spirit. Justification and adoption are simply God things. He gives them to us. We receive them. We do nothing to do it. But just sanctification is the Holy Spirit of God working in us through obedience to the Father to transform our lives. So to make this sound better, let's look at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. Let's look at what this looks like. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put, put them aside, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I love that last part, that which renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If I could, could try to put this into a picture or sum it up, what this is about is, is, is grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort. An effort towards obedience to the Father that's not about just doing to do. It's about doing because of what he has done for us. And this passage gives us a couple things to hang our hats on when it comes to understanding this process of sanctification, how we should go about it. The first one is to set our minds on things above. To set our minds on things above. Not on earthly things, but things above. And the things that we set our minds are up on are the things that we talked about. Justification and adoption. That God has made us right by no effort of our own. That he delights in us as children. It should tell us, it should produce within us when we put that together with our brokenness and understanding that, it should propel us into obedience of the Father. Because listen, we all understand to some degree that that grace was free, but we also have to understand that that grace was costly. Grace-driven efforts fights for holiness, but it does it for reasons that go beyond having a clear conscience. It isn't motivated that when I sin, I feel bad. Grace-driven effort understands that when I sin, I make light of the God of the universe, that I smear and belittle his name, that I've grieved the Holy Spirit. When we are declared children of God, we are to die to that old self. We don't live there anymore. Now, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, who is the author and co-author of kind of the series that we're going through, gives a really excellent example of what it looks like to set our minds on things above. And instead of trying to recreate the wheel, I'm just going to let you guys listen to it yourself. So you may hear this twice if you're in groups, but I think it's worth us listening to. Um, last year, last October, uh, my family and I moved um, to a new house. We were in Highland Shores, and we moved um, to Old Highland Village. And, and so all that really changed. It didn't push us any closer, any farther from the church. In fact, it's about the same equal distance. Um, but when I leave the church and I head down Highland Village Road and I come to the stoplight at Highland Shores, I used to make a left to get to my house. And then I had to make a right. And there was a season of about six weeks where I was having to cognitively tell myself, don't make a left here. You don't live there anymore. In fact, there was a day, and I'll just out myself as being a moron. Uh, I literally made left, made it into the driveway before I was like, wait. And then pulled out, waved to the people that bought our house. I didn't forget anything. I'm just a moron. And then drove to my new house. And the move changed everything about how we got to places. Changed how we got to Interstate 35. Changed how I got to my in-laws. Changed how I got to home group. Changed everything about where we went. But there was a season where when it came time to go somewhere, I had to think, how do I get there now? And the renewing of our mind is really that idea of pulling up to the light and going, I don't live there anymore, I live there. 
When our mind is renewed, that's not my house. That's my house. It's just a great picture for us to understand what it means to set our minds on things above. I mean, there has to be this willingness to say, I don't live there anymore. I live here. It's a cognitive choice. And there's going to be seasons of our lives that we're going to have to really have a lot of grace-driven effort to get past that. So when we understand that we're, we're no longer our old selves, that we're hidden in Christ, it should produce a desire in us to kill sin. All right, that we should become serious about putting sin to death, that we would become serious about putting sin to death. Putting it to death and living a godly life is not about, well, I feel bad when I do this. It's built upon grieving and understanding that I've dishonored the one who has extended grace to me. The believer no longer serves sin. His new nature is contrary to sin. It should change the way that we view temptation. When it says in Scripture that God would never give us more than we would handle, he's not saying that he's not going to put us in a situation that he can't get out, we can't get out of. What it says is this. Because we have a new heart and we are living with the Spirit of God inside of us and we have the weapons of grace, there's no such situation that exists for us. We can say no to our sin. We can say yes to walking in freedom. We don't live there anymore. So here's where the rubber meets the road. We understand this to some extent. But there are a lot of us in this room that just want to manage our sin, to control it. And I'm telling you, that's foolish. You can't control sin. You can't train it. You, you want it controlled, but you don't necessarily want it dead. But here's the problem. All sin does is kill. That's all it's ever designed to be. It kills and destroys. There's this cool story of a frog on the shore of a creek. And there's a scorpion down the way. Now, frogs and scorpions are just sworn enemies. Scorpions kill frogs. That's what they do. All right? So the frog is by this creek, and the scorpion meanders up. And the scorpion says this, because in my story, scorpions can talk. All right? I hope we're okay with that. The scorpion says hey, man, you know, I've got some stuff to do on the other side of the creek. I was just wondering, you can swim. Obviously, I can't. Could you let me just jump on your back, and you could swim across, and then I would just get off, and we'd go our separate ways. And the frog is like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem there. Uh, do you know how many of my friends that you've killed already? And you think that I'm going to let you come on my back and swim across? You're just going to kill me, man. And the, the scorpion's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Now, listen to this, brother. Now, if you were going to swim across and I was going to raise up and sting you, I'm going to kill you, right? And I've already told you I can't swim, so I'm going to die too. So why would I want to kill you? Because it's going to kill me also. And the frog thought, man, this scorpion makes one logical conversation here. You're right. I guess it makes sense to me. So the frog gets in the water, lets the scorpion climb on his back, and they proceed to go off across the creek. Halfway across the creek, the scorpion rises up and stings the frog. And as the frog is dying, he looks up at the scorpion and says, why did you kill me? And the scorpion said this, I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. That is all that sin does. That's its job. It kills us. But we think that we control it, and we can't. Grace-driven effort has to be violent at some point. I'm not talking like a WWE violent. I'm talking about a violent effort, a rage-filled effort to not let residual sin have one ounce 
of inches or anything in our life. That we don't want to just starve it or control it, that we want it dead. So let me tell you what that looks like in my life. There was an extended season of my life where I struggled with a sin that for the life of me, I could not get a hold of. And for me, that sin was pornography. And if you're offended that we're talking about this in church, then you're not aware of the plight of men in our culture. And if it makes you think less of me, then that's something we can talk about on another day. We need to talk about this. But hear me, I don't want you to get hung up on the sin of pornography. There is a huge list in Colossians 3 that we just went over that's probably manifesting itself into your lives. Insert whatever sin you want to put in this story, whether it be pride or lying or self-righteousness, not giving to God what is his anger. Insert any sin you want to in the struggle here. This is my story. I tried so hard to get rid of it. I removed temptations. I prayed about it. I tried to put software on my computer. I wanted to manage it. I wanted to control it. I didn't want anybody to find out. I felt dirty and shameful and unworthy. It affected every single one of my relationships. My love for myself and the way that I thought God felt about me. And I probably went through hundreds of attempts to stop. But I couldn't. So here is what changed for me. I had this moment in my life. I'm so thankful for it that I understood my brokenness and my ineptness. And in that, I understood that my efforts to fix me were the problem. And I'm sitting here trying to fix myself, but I don't have the tools to fix myself. And in that moment, I fully realized this, that God loved me in that mess. Not some future version of me, but the me in that mess that he even delighted in me and that bothered me, that he delighted in me. And I understand, stood maybe for the first time what it really meant to be justified, that I didn't deserve it and I was adopted and I couldn't earn it. And it caused me to have a seriousness about killing the sin in my life through him. So this is how it played out for me. I had to confess to the Father. I had to confess to him what I was doing. And in doing so, I understood that he wasn't mad at me. He wasn't. In fact, he embraced me. I repented in my heart for grieving him and taking advantage of the grace that he had given me. And then, and this was the tough one, I had hidden it from my wife, I had lied about it, and I had asked God for the courage to go to her and apologize and tell her what was going on. And that was a tough day. But I would not give that day up for any day. I couldn't get around. She needed to know. It was an obstacle for true intimacy in our relationship. And then I had to tell people who loved Jesus, that loved me, what I was dealing with, that they would rally around me and help me to kill that sin because I wanted it dead. So in my desire to kill that sin, I confessed it, I repented it, and I put people in my life who were serious about killing it with me. Now, did the desire go away? No. No, I wish I could say that it did at that very moment. But when you feel a desire that you know that's not good with you and you believe in Jesus and you're convicted about it, you seek God to help you through that. I can't tell you how many times I lay on the floor just begging God that he would take it away from me. Texting friends and calling people and saying, help me through this struggle. I became completely dependent on God to help me through it. And I was and I still am serious about that sin being dead in my life. All the promises that sin ever made me were never fulfilled. Always huge promises, never never delivered on them. The only person that has ever delivered on a promise made to me is Jesus. He's the only one that keeps his promises. 
there, wherever that was I was at, I am praising God that I can see with my own eyes that that was not a good place for me. And I pray, friends, brothers, sisters, that you could have clarity in your life to see that the sin in your life is not a good place for you. Here, where I'm at, is a much better place because I am completely loved by the Father because I'm completely known by the Father and known by others. And there is a freedom in that that you will never experience unless you're there. So, I just want you to hear me today that God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. My journey speaks to that. That's the process of sanctification. So in an effort just to be honest with you guys, because I just, I want to be honest. I told God I just want to be honest. That if we're in this room and we're sinning and there's no desire to change that sin, there's no remorse in that sin, there's no objective obedience to walk with the Father, then we have to ask ourselves seriously whether we're a Christian or not. Or whether you're just giving God lip service. That struggle in your life that desire not to sin is the objective evidence that the high surgeon in heaven is working in your life to sanctify you. Don't hate that part. Love it. That's God working in you to sanctify you. Lean into that. Take it seriously. He loves you way too much to leave you where you're at. But when you feel that pull to fix it and you think you can fix it yourself, listen to me, you can't. You can't fix it yourself. We attack it, the Spirit of God, with our fellow believers in Christ and understanding that God delights in us and he's already justified us. And that should motivate us to walk into obedience with him, grace-driven effort. So just to try to wrap this up into a nice package for you today, I want you to leave here understanding this. For those of us who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we have faith that Jesus is God, that God justifies you just the way you are, not some future version of you, the you that is sitting in this chair right now justified you pure by faith. And in that same moment that God justified you, he adopted you as sons and daughters, and God is in the business of delighting in his kids. And he loves you way too much He is a good father, and good fathers love their kids way too much to leave them where they're at. And he is in the habit of taking us who confess by faith and sanctifying them one step at a time, which we move closer and closer to his nature, pruning us and lovingly correcting us into an image that looks more and more like him on a daily basis. So know that we have a just judge, friends, but we have a good father. He's a good father, and he is worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Father, would you just hear our hearts today, just, just from our cries, Lord, would you just place within us an overwhelming knowledge of your love for us, that you delight in us right where we're at, not some future version of us. Help us to live that out on a daily basis, that we should know that you're the only reality that actually matters, that when we try to manage you or sprinkle you into our lives, it doesn't work, but that you're the source of all that we do. Father, just convict our hearts of the sin that continues to fester in our lives and give us the courage to admit that to somebody and repent about it before you and before them, Lord, and give us the strength to kill that, Lord, to not give it one inch to move. God, we just bring that you would bring people into our lives that would battle hard with us. We thank you for all that you do for us.
And we pray this through the awesome name of Jesus Christ who did for us what we could not. Amen.